This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal, and I'm Jess Nam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Well, Jamal, we have another uh, great show today in the context of the ongoing you know, pandemic. And we'll be talking about some aspects of the pandemic later on in the show in terms of what's happening in the in the Arab world, specifically in Jordan, which is really tragic and will lead to a good discussion about the impact in the Arab world. We have to talk about, you know, anti-Asian, anti-API, um, xenophobia and attacks on our brothers and sisters in the uh, Asian community, which has just been horrific. And we'll be spending on some time with that. But first, we have a pretty amazing interview with uh, Stavit Sinai, a uh, Berlin-based anti-apartheid, Israeli anti-apartheid activist, who I think is going on trial for speaking the truth. And uh, she's going to have a lot of interesting things to, to speak about. It was a really good interview. That's right. Just, just a quick reminder, because we've had her uh, colleague, Rani Barkan, right. uh, and they called them, it's three of them, actually, and we'll have hopefully the third individual in, in this uh, trial. The trial already happened. Uh, Savit is waiting sentencing. The so the, the, the three of them, uh, they're, they're called the Humboldt uh, Three. That's uh, Humboldt University in Germany. Not to confuse it with Humboldt County right here. Okay, so that's the Humboldt Three. Majid Abu Salama, who's a Palestinian from Gaza, finishing his PhD along with Israeli anti-Zionist activist Rani Barkan, we've had on the show, and Dr. Stavit Sinai. They disrupted a talk given at the Humboldt University of Berlin in June 2017 by then uh, Israeli Knesset member Eliza Levy. So for their peaceful action uh, against uh, Levy, they were charged with trespassing. They were physically thrown out of the lecture hall and smeared uh, all over uh, German media with charges of anti-Semitism. These two of them, uh, one is a Palestinian, two of them are uh, Jewish uh, Israelis. They were smeared with charges of anti-Semitism all over the German media. Uh, and yet uh, in the courthouse on uh, August 3rd, 2020, after three-year uh, legal battle, they were victorious over Humboldt University and the Israeli lobby in uh, Germany. Rani and Majid were acquitted of all charges, while Stavit was fined uh, for, I, th I think, something like 450 euros, probably to save face for the prosecution, right. and now she's refusing to pay. So that's her <laughs> next kind of like when she appears in front of the judge. If she refuses to pay, there is a possible jail, jail sentence. She spoke uh, to me from Berlin. We are continuing to celebrate Women's History Month and Palestinian women who refuse to be silent. This month, we've had Yafa Jarrar, daughter of Khalida Jarrar, who was sentenced to serve two years in Israeli prison for refusing to be silent. We also had Suhair Nafal, who won a defamation suit brought against her by an Israeli soldier. Today, our guest is Dr. Stavit Sinai, an Israeli anti-apartheid activist based in Berlin, where she teaches philosophy at a community college. She also refuses to remain silent. 
Dr. Sinai graduated with a PhD from Constance University and is the author of the book Sociological Knowledge and Collective Identity, which is about Israeli sociology and settler colonialism. Welcome, welcome to Arab Talk, uh, Stavit. Thank you so much. Very happy to be here. Let me start with a tweet and, a, and two pictures you posted last week on International Women's Day. A picture of you as an Israeli soldier and you wrote, How I started, juxtaposed against a picture of you carrying a sign to boycott Israel, and you said, How it's going. Tell me more about the message you were sending. Well, I think this tweet, although it was composed very, very quickly, kind of um, trying to communicate, I mean, it relates to, to the International Women's Day and, and the idea of, of change and self-liberation. Um, so I believe that for us women to liberate ourselves, to emancipate ourselves from the yoke of patriarchy and, and sexual violence and male violence and, and violence in, 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 in general, um, that form of self-liberation has to be political. Uh, it is first and foremost political, and that also means that we have to extend uh, our solidarity uh, to, to those to, to oppress women. Um, so this particular tweet, yeah, actually shows uh, the transformation of what I was, a soldier. Well, that photo was taken in a pre-military, in a, in a teen military camp, so pre-military camp. And what has become, which is uh, basically me being changed into uh, somebody who is currently supporting BDS and advocates for BDS. Well, uh, you are part of the humble three uh, who faced a trial in Berlin for speaking up against apartheid and disrupting a speech by former Knesset member Eliza Lavi. We've had uh, your compatriot, Rani Barkan, on, on this show, who is yeah. also of, uh, a member of the humble three, to talk about the event. In your opening statement to Berlin Criminal Court on, I think, August 3rd of 2020, mm. you said it's never late to transition from Zionism to humanism. Tell us about this uh, transition and what do you mean by it? Well, being a Zionist in, in the political level, yeah, uh, means uh, being racist, basically. It means it actually symbolizes everything that humanism opposed to, namely oppression, uh, coercion of population, uh, committing crimes against humanity, basically depriving uh, people of their own humanity. It's, uh, being a Zionist today in the political context of Israeli apartheid means to support the dehumanization of people, of individuals, of Palestinians mainly. So... In my view, uh, being Zionist is opposed to being a humanist, namely of somebody who seeks the, the good um, in, in men and uh, that sees individuals as their own, uh, not as a mean to something, but as their own purposes, their own ends. And um, this, humanism also is about uh, the belief that uh, people have conscience and then that they are capable of taking moral actions and not, not uh, supporting uh, those very forces uh, against, against which my comrades and I are very much uh, opposed to. 
So in my view, there is this dichotomy between being a Zionist, which means being racist and supremacist, and being a humanist, namely to pursue the good and conscious uh, moral action. Now, if I said uh, being a Zionist is being a racist, just just me as a, as a radio host or 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 for that matter, anyone else, we will be bombarded by criticism and somebody will actually criticize you, you know, for saying this. And if I said it, I'll be labeled as an anti-Semite because, as you know, there is a conflation between uh, the uh, criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism. So I want you to go back to talk about this, about this conflation. And, and, and as you know, this is a big issue right here in the United States, but even in Europe, it's even a bigger issue in Germany, in France, if uh, people can go to jail for making statements like this. Um, <laughs> so first, let me uh, tell you that although I myself, uh, coming from a Jewish family and a Jewish uh, Holocaust surviving family, um, the media is still um, naming me uh, as anti-Semitic. Of course, we don't have to respect all opinions. Uh, we should uh, only respect the honorable opinions. So there is one strategy in which, like as activists, we say we, we ignore it. This is not worthy of our attention. Uh, but at a, at a, at a, a different level, we, we have to keep in mind that Israel uh, gained legitimacy by the sinister conflation between Judaism and uh, Zionism, which are inherently, uh, which is something that is inherently contradictive because Judaism is very much, it's Judaism is a religion that actually rejects every uh, symbolism of, of an authority that is uh, not divine, uh, or it's basically rejects the authority of the state. It rejects every authority that is not the religious authority. Um, and especially to have a, a different culture of the culture of a state is something that is completely opposed to Judaism. And uh, many of the norms that are um, instilled within the Zionist political culture as we, are very much opposed to Judaism and are actually blasphemous to Judaism. So, but uh, nevertheless, uh, as I said, Israel draws legitimacy from that sinister conflation, which is in itself anti-Semitic to assume that all Jews would necessarily be in the favor of um, the Zionist, uh, in favor of the interest of the Zionist supremacist state. So this is in itself racist. And this leads me back to the, uh, the, the, the opening argument, which is we should not render um, any, not affiliate any value to these kind of claims that name us as anti-Semitic, although as in my case, we are actually, we are still trying to overcome the trauma of the Holocaust. Well, I mean, I mean, I agree with you. Uh, however, um, I mean, you have powerful forces, you have governments. In the United States, you've mentioned uh, earlier that you are a supporter of BDS. And now we have legislators who are trying to pass laws to criminalize people supporting the BDS, to criminalize companies or institutions who boycott uh, Israel. This is this is even though 
uh, I mean, I've had this discussion many times on this show that it is a violation of uh, the U.S. Constitution. It's a violation of the First Amendment. So I support you that you should ignore those sinister voices, but they are powerful and they hold, uh, you know, powerful seats. They are congressmen in the U.S., they are senators, they are lawmakers. And in Europe, they can criminalize you for this. So how do you go around this? Uh, preserve your dignity and, and your belief, yet you have to face, like in your case, for disrupting a, someone who you disagree with, uh, you, you, face, uh, you face prison. Well, it's, in my case, in the Humboldt case, it's more of a disagreement. I mean, in the Humboldt case, there were uh, the Israeli apartheid representative, which was also involved in crimes against humanity and war crimes in Gaza. So this is not a matter of disagreement. This is, um, this is, this is uh, it's not even a conflict. It is a rupture between those who seek to dehumanize humanity and those who are uh, saying uh, activists like us who are saying we have the duty to oppose crimes against humanity. But uh, yeah, relating to your question, look, I've been a, a, a victim, although I don't see myself as a victim. Uh, but I was, all, I also kind of fell uh, into the hands of um, Israeli propaganda and smearing campaigns. And like every every second week, there's a new smear about me and my comrades every two weeks. So you see that there's an active effort to criminalize, and also not to speak of the criminalization. I mean, they actually managed to bring us to court and to accuse us of some petty offenses and actually managed to criminalize. I mean, in my case, they, they charged me, they, they found me guilty in a crime which they never charged me with. So this is actually really, even they go to such extent where they don't even, you know, maintain the basic uh, civil frameworks that uh, so but why is that why why are they doing why do they go to such effort and that is because we are doing something that is effective when Ronnie and I go uh, to to bust like a Zionist uh, event it it damaged their first and foremost it damages their own ideological core. There's somebody who is disagreeing with them. So the, the, in, 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 in their, I think, uh, viewpoint, something in reality has, has kind of broke and they need to reinstill it. And they would do it by persecuting those who kind of evoke. Uh, well, you, I mean, I mean, I mean, with, in your case and, and Rani's case, you are uh, both Jewish, you are both uh, Israelis. So uh, that's something uh, really uh, goes against all the grain of the Israeli Hasbara that they put out there. And they cannot, in the case of other activists, be it Palestinians or their supporters, because they can always label them as anti-Semites or anti-Israel, or they're seeking to destroy the state. I mean, that's, that's the easiest thing. But that's why I feel it's more powerful when you and Rani speak out. I mean, speak up. I mean, this is really, you know, it's a it's a shock to the Zionist forces. I know they they are they are shocked by it. Also, when in our action, we also make sure that we speak some Hebrew <laughs> into it. 
Um, yeah, I agree with you. And nevertheless, they still smear us. I mean, there's there's been a huge campaign against me specifically, although I'm Jewish and although I have all the right credentials to speak of that matter. And this is what, what brings me to the argument that it's never about the identity of the speaker, but actually the content of what we are saying as an international community that says this crime have to end. These crimes, these are crimes, apartheid is a crime against humanity that is on par with genocide, according to the Rome Statute. This is not some petty offenses. This is a major violation of everything that is human. It takes part in that place of the world, although it, it also tends to expand as apartheid is used in, in different, uh, in India, in Brazil, and in different, uh, so so it's all the more we have the responsibility to put an end to the crime, and um, I think I think that we are because of our identity, specific identity, it really plays on their minds uh, of the Zionist lobby and of other groups uh, here in Berlin. Um, but we also have to keep in mind that these are very uh, these are historical mechanisms that we are fighting. This is not just, you know, it's not even a poli one political party that we are targeting. This is a historical force. This is a colonialist movement that we are um, challenging. And of course, they are going to fight back. And it's for me, it's just very natural. This is how politics work. Um, I believe that still there's some people in the community that, that can look beyond the smear, that understand that. This is how it goes. And we, we as a community should, you know, be in solidarity with each other and render the support we need in order to deal with it on the emotional level, on, 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 on the financial, on, on financial level as well and, and, and other levels. But this is, this is a part of the game. And I say, bring it on, bring it on. They can smear me as much as they want, but it won't stop me from saying that Israel commits war, uh, crimes against humanity because it does. Do you feel, I mean, your methods are effective? I mean, I'm not talking about effective as, uh, as shining a spotlight on the atrocities committed by Israel, but I'm more interested to see if, it's, if, if, if it has any effect on the young new generation in Israel to change that uh, whatever uh, Zionist uh, doctrine that they have been fed on since childhood. Uh, I mean, from time to time, I see some young men and women who are refuseniks, uh, uh, refuse, who refuse to serve in the Israeli uh, military. Uh, is, is this working? Do you think, uh, have you made any advancement or are we regressing? Well, there's the BDS campaign and, and its um, effects and it's like, um, its consequences, um, results, so to speak, that take place on the global uh, level or the international level. But when I think that if you ask me about Israeli society or Zionist society, I think that there is a big backlash against BDS, a huge backlash. And also the youth are ever more going through a transformation of becoming more nationalist, more uh, ultra-nationalist, wow. more... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there's a huge backlash, and also on the international level and in the, in the local level as well. The youth are actually more right-wing than 
in my generation, let's say I'm a, I'm a vintage millennia, so I was born in the mid-80s, but now the, the generation, like, generation after me are even more right-wingers. So this has been a process that was led by, I, I think, since a process of radicalization uh, towards the right that happened since, even before Bibi came to power. So since since the crisis, I believe, uh, 2008 crisis, they they just didn't react well to the campaign and the overall tendencies have caused a radicalization in the other direction. So no, it's not efficient, but we have to keep in mind that what we like, we are long-term runners, long distance runners for justice. So we cannot, we cannot take an example of what is happening now in order to assess the campaign and our strategies. We believe that taking direct action and civil disobedience are the right ways to go. And I hope we will see results in the far future. I'm 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 very impressed by your optimism uh, because I tend I tend to be optimist op, an optimist myself, uh, but what you said is also uh, a little bit depressing because I remember when I was working on on my doc documentary uh, Occupied Minds and interviewing both Palestinians and Israelis, we came across like some hope like uh, people members of Breaking the Silence uh, Shovrim Shtika. Uh, you know, who spoke against the occupation and uh, I've interviewed uh, at the time Meron Redvenisti, who was uh, uh, veering towards, uh, you know, the, a one-state kind of solution, even though we had our own disagreements, but there was some glimmer of hope. But what you're saying now, we don't have that glimmer of hope. No, we maybe not in the short term, Maybe not in our time, but I believe that um, in the long run, apartheid as a regime is in is in uh, is 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 would just collapse. It has no inner coherency. It is based on suffering. It is based on irrationality, on suppression, and we see that these kind of regimes they they don't usually last, and. So I have a huge optimism about the future of the region. I believe that apartheid will collapse eventually. And I believe that equality will be uh, granted to all the sons and daughters of the land, including the refugees. But that also, if there is optimism, if optimism is in the way we, it's in the form of thought that we are able to formulate. So for example, if you have activists like Shovrim Shtika, Breaking the silence, or other leftist organization like Betelem, um, <clears throat> and other 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 organizations that keeps emphasizing occupation as the main crime and not apartheid, they're a part of the problem. Well, uh, Betelem at least recently came with a report, and they showed a shift. Not talking about only the occupation, but they named it what it is, which is apartheid. Yeah, so there is you know, a little bit movement there, right? I have. I agree with you. Uh, by the way, we've been challenged. We have challenged them for many years before they even accepted to speak with us to hear that view. 
Um, and there are still many liberal Zionist uh, organ or, or figures or organization that would still would be very much in the forefront of the fight against occupation, but they would still um, justify a Jewish supremacist state in the 48. So, by the way, Bezalem, if you read the report in Hebrew, which I which I'm able to do so, you would find inconsistencies about their term terminology. So why, whereas they they do claim apartheid to be or in all from the river to the sea, you would then read the text and you would see, oh, that's that's not what's stated. So there is lack of correlation between uh, what they write in the text and what they declare in the title. Um, so, but I give them, you know, would grant them the benefit of the doubt and would say that, yeah, this is a good step. Too bad it happens in, in 2021. Should have been, I mean, crime against these crimes have been ongoing. Uh, but so, so just to sum, sum up the argument, I think that there's a lot to be optimistic about, but in the long run. Uh, where I sit at the moment, like I'm, I'm living in East Berlin. And this, this used to be a different state not a, not a long time ago. So there is this transformation in history uh, um, where regimes are changing and they change like identities are, is something that is very flexible. And well, I mean, you, made a, you make a very good point. I was going to actually ask you about how do you kind of uh, make that connection being, uh, you know, the granddaughter of uh, Holocaust uh, people who suffered under the Holocaust, that now you are advocating for Palestinians right from the heart of the Nazi, former Nazi yeah. regime. Yeah, so so first there's like my personal experience. Uh, you know, now, now, nowadays we understand the trauma is not just something that the person experienced and then it's kind of tend to be inherited in the family, trauma. Mm -hmm. um, so this is something I think that many families are dealing with families and individuals actually, you know, um, having this kind of atrocities that happens in your family. And that's like my father was, was born still during the war in the last year of the war. Um, so that has a huge psychological effect on an individual, but, um, at the same at the same level, I think it comes. It also like it comes with a moral responsibility at the same time because I'm thinking that like like one of our great sources of inspiration of Ronnie and I and other people in in the community is the Vice Rosa, the White Rose Underground Resistance Underground that was operating during the Nazi period, and this was a group of students that basically. Um, produce uh, leaflets and and against the Nazi regime and and they basically just uh, distributed these leaflets in Germany during the war and they got caught and executed. So this is to say that you know this kind of like my my family would like to have would have loved to have somebody speaking in their behalf while these crimes are ongoing. And we take inspiration from those very heroes that actually spoke on the behalf of Jews and other, other victims of the Nazi regimes. And I think Palestinian people would like us to do the same 
namely to speak um, against crimes against humanity as they take place. Um, so you're asking me about the Holocaust. So just to sum it up, while there is still a lot of a huge psychological burden to carry, there's still a lot of responsibility that comes with it to speak, to, to, to actually fulfill the humanistic commitment and to speak on the behalf of those who are currently victims of those crimes. So I'm basically doing what I would have loved somebody to do for me. Well, and, uh, and, yeah. that's very powerful. Um, back to your uh, case, you are currently waiting for the court to issue a fine. Uh, they said they'll issue a fine or they'll send you back to prison. So what's yes. next? I mean, if they fine you, are you going to pay the fine? Are you going to go to prison? What's going to what's going to happen? So uh, at the moment, I'm waiting for the court to issue the fine. And I was I was already telling the judge um, as it, he was about to sentence me. And I told him, you know, I'm not going to pay the fine. So you can send me to prison right away. We don't have to go through the bureaucracy. Because I will not, as far as it's up to me, as it depends on me, I will not pay it because bringing us to court was an act of political persecution. It is very clear. And they also, the, in, in many ways, the, the, the procedure was illegal. So, for example, I've mentioned that I was convicted in a crime I was not accused of. So there's no correlation between the punishment and the crime. So... So, so, so that was a form of persecution. They're doing it in order to, um, to basically criminalize the movement. And um, for me, it's a form of civil disobedience, of, of resistance to the state. I mean, they want to force me to pay, although we have the money. Um, I'm not going to pay it as an act of, of, of defiance. And I will go to prison because... Um, I believe that as activists, we should also be connected with the local community, um, the community of oppressed and underprivileged and the classless. And this is where I belong as an activist to be with the people. And although I can pay my way, I can pay my way out of it. I have the money. I am that privileged where I can buy my freedom. I don't know. I don't want to buy it. I want to use it to challenge the system. Um, that did it in order to protect uh, a war crime. So, so just to sum it up again, the, the trial was about criminalizing activists and protecting war criminals. And I would not you know, go along with that and just close the deal by paying my way out. Um, well, so. we're going to keep uh, an eye uh, on your case and, and hopefully uh, we'll bring you again to, uh, to talk <laughs> about it and talk about your work. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Stavit Sinai, uh, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you so much, Jamal. It's been a pleasure. And I send you much solidarity in the U.S. <laughs> thank you. Ciao. That's the voice and the uh, face of Dr. Stavit Sinai, uh, anti-apartheid Israeli, anti-apartheid activist who's awaiting uh, her sentencing, Jamal, from a judge because she's refusing to pay a fine for her peaceful demonstration against an Israeli Knesset member 
And this goes to show you, Jamal, how extensive the Israeli Hasbara machine is in Germany and how the Israeli Hasbara machine has been holding the German government hostage for so many years. It's unbelievable that she and Ronnie would be accused of anti-Semitism for attempting to speak the truth about Israeli apartheid. You're absolutely right. And then so um, we will wait and see. And I'm sure we'll have her back on the show to tell us what happened unless they decide not to continue with finding her because it's going to be embarrassing, I think, for the German government. It, no, but it, isn't it already embarrassing, Jamal, that uh, a EU country like Germany, which espouses you know, democracy and free speech and all of the hallmarks of a democratic uh, society, won't even let Israelis who are studying in their country um, speak out critically about an Israeli apartheid system. She that, teaches, just, she just she has her PhD. I know. She teaches now in Germany at the community college. Unbelievable. And at a time when Isra the Israeli, uh, where there's a relatively large Israeli anti-apartheid movement going on right now, speaking and calling Israel calling them out for their apartheid practices. It's really embarrassing to the German government. I don't see how they get out of this, Jamal. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. We will. Uh, and uh, we're going to move on to another topic, Jess. Uh, and, and you've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. This is a big thing. I think it's very tragic to you for Jordan. It hasn't made uh, big news right here in the United States because of all the COVID cases and everything else. But for a small country like Jordan, uh, just hundreds of people have been going out on the streets in defiance of night curfew. There's a night curfew, for example, in the city of Irbid and several other provincial, uh, provincial cities, uh, you know, including uh, the uh, a neighborhood in the capital. And the city of Salt, this is where the incident happened, uh, and they've been going out on the streets, Salt, south of Karak, it's the south of Karak city, uh, uh, and the port of uh, the city of Aqaba, chanting things like, down with the government, we don't fear coronavirus, they're saying, you know, which is, which, you know, it's going to make the problem worse, because they're going out on the streets. And um, the uh, and of course the Jordan's economy has been particularly uh, hard hit by the shutdowns right. um, right. and the containing the virus. Unemployment in Jordan uh, just is over twenty four percent, over twenty four percent. And if you take that unemployment for the, the young people, which is a you know Jordan has a vast majority of people under the age of uh, twenty four. Right. Unemployment is 50%. So one out of two youngsters. There's no work, it. Jamal. It's unbelievable. They don't, they don't have jobs. So the demonstrators, of course, have been blaming the government for the worsening of the economic conditions. And uh, they're complaining about what they term as draconian emergency laws enacted at the start of the pandemic. All kinds of reasons going on. And the latest event is because the hospital uh, in the Salt, that's a, a government-run hospital, yes, they ran out of oxygen, supposedly. Yes. That's, that's what we heard. Six patients died within minutes of each other. Yeah. Basically, 
you should know that. What did happen to them? They suffocated to yeah. death. Yeah, and that's ex that's exactly, Jamal, what happens. And when you get hospitalized with COVID symptoms, COVID at its core for most people is a respiratory disease and a respiratory system becomes so impaired, you develop bad pneumonia, severe pneumonia, and that the only way you can live is by being on supplemental oxygen. Tragically, there is a international shortage of oxygen, as it turns out. It's so many patients are in need of oxygen these days because of, you know, the COVID. And when you get hospitalized, you need to be on oxygen for such a long time. These six Jordanians, unfortunately, succumbed to this hospital not being prepared or the Jordanian government not being ready to take on the task of having enough oxygen for for them. And they, they suffocated to death, Jamal. It's It's really tragic. It's very tragic. It's a small country. The six patients, by the way, they are they are all related. Not you know oh, wow. from the you know you know the, you know how it is in the Middle East. That's a small town through intermarriage, big families. So they're all everyone knows everyone there. So almost every house in the city of Salt basically suffered from this tra tragedy. Terrible. They're either they're either the next of kin or a cousin or a or, you know or married to uh, someone there. So it hit that uh, city, uh, you know, big time. Uh, the uh, the uh, prime minister, uh, Kawasne, fired his health minister. So everybody's blaming someone else. Right. He fired the health minister. The health minister before that, uh, I think, got rid, got rid of the head of the hospital, you know. So they fired that. There's a, an investigation. They don't know. Did they run out? Uh, because uh, uh, oxygen is in short supply or somebody, someone forgot to change the tanks right. or they lost. Uh, so, that, so there's a lot of things going on. I don't right. think it's just like as simple as, oh, the country didn't have oxygen. Just right. It's just uh, total negligence. And the king himself went to, to salt. Oh, really? He, yeah. And, and you could see him on TV. He was very angry. So... Um, uh, I want to offer our condolences to our Jordanian yeah, brothers and we, sisters. We we want to offer our condolences, but I do think Jamal, this parts points to a larger uh, issue in the Arab world about how COVID is being treated and maintained and cared for and managed. Because we're not hearing much about it, you hear about it, and I hear about it because of our contacts. And uh, unfortunately. You know, there there appears to be some relatively adequate treatment and um, vaccination going on. Let's say in some of the Gulf countries, we see some, you know, you know, pretty decent treatment and access to vaccines among Gulf countries, which have virtually unlimited economic resources to do that. However, in North Africa and in the Levantine areas of the Arab world, we're seeing really, you know, bad outcomes large infection rates, unavailability of vaccines, people getting sick, and more devastation when it comes to, you know, the impact of COVID-19, which we don't hear about here. You're absolutely right. We don't have stats. I have to say also, like Jordan, from the get-go, actually, they tried their best with their limited resources. They if you did. remember, we had Dahoud Kutab, and they right. were, you know, quarantining people uh, coming from overseas. Because, you know, a lot of Jordanians work in the Gulf. They work all over, so returning home. They try to 
put uh, some strict measures, which uh, worsened the economy, because also the economy, even before right. COVID, was terrible. And right. now, uh, like I said, you have 24% unemployment. And then when you calculate that to, to the youth uh, sector, it's, it rises as high as 50%. So, well, it's, uh, and, you know. and, and I have more bad news, Jamal. I'm sorry to say that it doesn't look like it's going to get much better in the Arab world, uh, North Africa, the, the, the Levant area. It doesn't look like it's going to get much better. We don't have good vaccine distribution uh, anyways in that region. The policies and the government's infrastructure when it comes to healthcare in general is not good. And then if you look like if you look at countries like uh, especially Syria right now, which is still in the throes of a civil war, you look at Iraq, which is emerging from decades of war. Those are the communities that are especially suffering, uh, just like you know what we've spoken about what's happening in in Palestine with Gaza and the West Bank. It's it's gonna get much worse, unfortunately, before it gets better. That's right. And speaking of the subject of COVID and as a, uh, I guess, byproduct, shouldn't be just a byproduct because this is systematic racism, uh, Jess. Attacks on Asian Americans uh, continue. Um, terrible. And, and, and why I connect this to COVID, you know, since, uh, of course, the coronavirus shutdowns uh, began last March, thousands of Asian Americans has have faced racist, verbal, and physical attacks, or have been shunned by others. This is according to different studies re, uh, that I've been looking at. There's a report from by Stop AAPI Hate. Right. It documents 3,795 racially motivated attacks against Asian Americans from March until February, March but that's last just year reported too, Jamal. Those are just yeah, the this is, yeah. This is this is you're absolutely right. This is just reported. More than two thirds of the attacks in the study were, were reported by women. Okay, so by women, more than forty percent of the attacks were reported by Chinese Americans, fifteen uh, percent by Korean Americans, and eight percent by Filipino. Americans. So you have about four in 10 Asian Americans said people have acted uncomfortable around them because of their race since the pandemic started. This is, these are, these are just like people who, you know, it wasn't outright racism, but that's what they're saying. This is how they felt. Four out of 10. That's, a, that's 40%, right? And then 31% said that they have been subjected to racial slurge or, 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 or something said like in kind of like a joke. Uh, this is according to the Pew Research Center study. And, and then, of course, sadly, and this is, we'll talk about it more, on Tuesday, eight people, right, six of them were Asian women, were shot to death at a parlor in Atlanta, the Atlanta area. And I don't know what to say. Here's what I have the, to say, The Jamal. authorities I, say that on Wednesday, they were saying, I mean, two crazy things, and I'll let, I'll let you talk about it, because I know it, that this, this did not appear to be motivated by race, that crazy. the alleged uh, shooter told investigators that he had a sexual addiction. And then another thing, the uh, sheriff uh, said that the guy had a, a bad day. Unbelievable. 
Well, let, let's let's just call it what it is, Jamal. I mean, for for the sheriff to defend basically a mass murderer and because of the number of people he... And we have to say he's a white guy. Yeah, right? he's a white so. Caucasian guy. Uh, defending him as just having a bad day. It's not a bad day when you commit mass murder. But I guess for some people in the United States, committing mass murder just means you're having a bad day. This is part of a systematic pattern of hate being directed toward our Asian American brothers and sisters for over a hundred years. For you know, it's been going on and off for over a hundred years. We have to acknowledge that this is the same country, the United States, that put Asian Americans in concentration camps, even while they were after they served in the in the in in served this country in the military. So we have a long history of that. Unfortunately, since the Trump administration came out and used extremely grotesque, hateful language to describe the coronavirus in racialized terms, it gave free license, I believe, to a lot of these white supremacists, hateful groups to come out and attack Asians, uh, creating this atmosphere of, of hate and degradation. We need to really point out, Jamal, that the attacks on Asian Americans is not only unacceptable, but women are being attacked. So this is an attack on all women. It's an attack on Asian women specifically. And this is something that unless we wrap our hands around, you know, if if Asian women don't feel safe in this country being able to move around, then none of us are safe. This is part of the legacy, Jamal, of, of Donald Trump's presidency and his four years in office. Look, Jess, you and I talked about it uh, before. Many times. Uh, and I still have that image of a doctor uh, talking on a TV network saying that uh, she was uh, harassed and attacked while she was treating a patient. She was yelled patient. at. Patient. She was yelled at. And, and the patient saying he doesn't want to be treated by her. Right. Here is a medical doctor in our hospitals. And that kind of is stuck in my mind. Yeah. Someone who's trying to help him refuses. And then you started uh, to touch on the historical background, which goes to more than 100 years, especially in the Bay Area, with the building of the railroads with the Chinese Americans to World War II. I mean, uh, racism towards Asian Americans has deep roots even in so-called liberal San Francisco Absolutely. and the Bay Area. Absolutely. Uh, and I, 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 in April 29, 1942, uh, just Japantown, which is a very popular tourist attraction, was emptied out from its Japanese residence uh, by Executive Order 9066. 7,816 7, people were held. And this is, for young people, they don't know. I mean, people know where is... Japan town, they were held at the Tan Fran. And uh, you know what is the Tan Fran in, in South San... Uh, That's right. In, in, in San Mateo, basically about 15, 16 miles south of San Francisco. Uh, the Tan Fran is now a shopping mall. It used to be a racing track. And they were held there. They set up right here in the Bay Area a, a detention camp. They don't want to call it concentration camp. And they... Uh, they called it a civilian assembly center. Yeah, it's BS. They, <laughs> yeah. they round it up and they put them in internment camps, Jamal. And, well, afterwards, this is the kind of like a temporary 
so they they got them all out from Japan town into and all over the city into this racetrack that they called a civilian center. And then, then they distributed them to different internment camps across the country. So they were pretty much uh, deported uh, out of California, some of them. Others went to Southern California. And, and that's the history of the internment but Jamal, camps. I, I, but I want to remind you, we have internment camps on Angel Island, not that far from where you and I are broadcasting right now. There are still remnants of internment camps for Asian Americans here in the Bay Area on Angel Island that they use to house hundreds and hundreds of uh, Asian Americans uh, at the time when they were rounded up. So as you said, I mean, the Bay Area, irrespective of the, you know, patina of liberalism, was very much involved in the rounding up and interning of Asian Americans. It's uh, it's a horrible historical legacy. And this is not a legacy that, that can be ignored given what's happening right now, Jamal. Just in the last week, a number of elderly Asian Americans in the Bay Area where we're broadcasting have been beaten, have been robbed, and have been have died from their one, injuries. Yeah, one one of them died, I think, uh, in Oakland. So I mean, this is this is you know this Trump legacy of fomenting you know hatred toward our Asian brothers and sisters who have served in this country, served the military, been here for generations and generations, is part of that ugly you know white supremacy legacy, Jamal. That is you know as we're hearing from the FBI this week. I mean, just to call it what it is, we're seeing the greatest threat to national security in this country are white supremacists. And um, this, is, this is something that we have to take very, very seriously. And I don't believe that we really are, unfortunately. No, I don't think um, actually, well, not, not everywhere. But when I hear the, the sheriff department talking about it uh, when these women were killed, Kind of, oh, he had a bad, he had a bad day, you know. Like I, I don't know. I mean, where do they receive their training, or, or they come up with a conclusion, or did, did, didn't appear to be a racist thing? You've only had him in custody for in a few hours. The guy was driving from place to place. It reminds me also of the attack on the uh, our Lat uh, Latino brothers and sisters with the guy who drove what uh, eighteen hours That's right. to go all the way across Texas to to kill. Basically, what he deemed Mex Mexican illegals. Right. right. Remember? Yeah. So people forget that story. I mean, that uh, you know, that's so motivated that that someone will will drive across a whole state to kill to to kill one ethnic group. And, yeah. and I think Asian Americans are facing the same thing now. I think you're right, Jamal. And I just want to address the issue that the sheriff didn't believe that it was racially motivated. It is unconscionable for him to say that. Um, so if he was trying to kill temptation, because he's a Southern Baptist guy, apparently, who feels like he has to get rid of his temptation, he could have gone anywhere. He could have killed or attacked. Yes, I don't know if I can say what I'm going to say on, on radio, but he can kill temptation by, you know, taking a scissor and, you know, cutting what? Right, right. But... He and he'll kill he, his own temptations. He, he doesn't have to go kill right, people. Right. But he could have he could have attacked anybody, Jamal. He went specifically to places of businesses 
where it was that were advertised as being businesses owned by Asian Americans. So it's ridiculous for the sheriff to defend this guy, this who committed these acts of aggression and murder that were racially motivated. They are hate crimes, irrespective. Now, we obviously need to let the justice system unfold in terms of its investigation. The FBI will get involved. But it's it tells you about the Deep South and the way sheriffs look at when white people commit these crimes versus community people from different communities of color. Well, the thing with it, the thing is, if you look at every single white, what I call uh, homebred terrorist or whatever you want to call them, they all survive. They get arrested. They get lawyers. They have trials. You know, if you have a, a person of color, they'll be riddled with bullets. Yeah, they'd be shot. They never make. They would never have their day in court. Most of them don't have a day in court. But these guys somehow. You know, we've seen that time and time again. So there is also something, there is a problem also with how law enforcement sees people of color versus well, white people. We, we send our support. We've, we've been in the same boat with our Asian uh, American brothers and sisters, you know, for many years too with attacks on Arab and Muslim community members. We stand shoulder to shoulder with our Asian API brothers and sisters, and we'll do whatever we can on this show, Jamal, to, to speak to this and to support our, our brothers and sisters. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest episode, and we will talk to you next week. See you next week. <laughs>